are now tuned in to this week's episode of our podcast. Today, we are going to interview some of the greatest and most influential minds in our field. By sharing our collective expertise, we will show you how to harness, control, and use your own skill set to achieve ultimate success and live the life you want. And now, please welcome your host. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Influencer Confidential by Sidewalker Daily. My name is Nina Zeta and I will be your host. I love working with brands and influencers on all things business strategy. Are you ready to learn what it takes to work in this influencer industry and see behind the curtain? Well, let's jump in. Hey everyone, I'm Nina Zeta with Sidewalker Daily. I want to talk to you guys about things that people don't talk about in the influencer space. So let's call it influencer secrets. Let's talk about the things that influencers don't share due to lack of transparency, due to whatever reasons are not sharing it. I want to be the one to get on here and share them with you. Now, if you're new to my channel, welcome. My name is Nina. Like I said earlier, I actually work with influencers on developing their business strategies, helping them like develop their influence and all that good stuff. But how I got there was from working with brands on influencer campaigns. So brands would hire Sidewalker Daily, our agency, to do their influencer management, to do their campaigns. And through that, I learned a lot about what it takes to work on the influencer side. So we're kind of like what we like to say on both sides of the equation. And in this video, what I really, what my goals really are to do is to help pull back the curtain so you guys can see, you know, what maybe you think, especially for a lot of my audience, I know you guys are growing your influence, you're really working to be in this space, and you're like, why not me? Why not me, right? Like, I see everyone doing it, I'm so like, you know, maybe you get frustrated, maybe you feel discouraged, maybe you feel like a little bit down on yourself. Before I even like get into some like nitty gritty secrets, I did want to say this, that working with influencers has taught me the hard work and um, I guess like work ethic that so many influencers have. It's super, super crazy. So whether this is a secret or not, they are some of the hardest working people I personally have ever worked with. I'm talking getting up at like crazy times to take that sunrise shot. Um, They work crazy amount of hours. They're constantly having to be on, on their phones, posting, sharing, creating. I mean, it seems really exhausting. So that is just something I wanted to preface by saying that I know it looks really beautiful and perfect and everything on social, but just know that there is a lot of work that goes into it. Now, I think my first tip that I kind of just want to share, not even tip, first influencer secret is Everyone does things for free. Everyone. First of all, not only when you're starting out, even when you're like super well known and big. I mean, I'm pretty sure that I can't say every single one, but I want to say every single influencer, you know, has at some point done something for free. Um, And what I mean by this is people are doing collaborations because they're human and they like something. So let's just say you're a celebrity influencer and you're going to, I don't know, like a really great hotel or maybe like, I don't know, shopping or something of the other. 
there can be an exchange where the influencer is posting, you know, about the product or the destination and the other and the brand is giving it to them just with that in mind. So a lot of times we think, oh, my God, they're getting paid to post that they're doing this or they're getting paid to do that. While there is a collaborative effort and a swap, you know, of product and exchange, sometimes there is not money being paid. Now, I do want to preface that, of course, for travel, travel can get really, really expensive, right? So like a night at a hotel can be, you know, whatever that may be. And there is a fair trade. There's a fair exchange of value. The influencer has the certain eyeballs that the brand may want, and the brand has the product that the influencer wants. This happens all the time, and it's not... You know, it's not to say that you as an aspiring influencer should not be charging because, of course, this is your livelihood and this is something that you will learn as you grow in the space. But just know that even though you think that your favorite person is maybe getting paid for something, the FTC requires you to disclose collaborations as well. So non-paid collabs where there's just an exchange of goods or services. So just because it says ad or sponsored doesn't necessarily mean it was paid. So I just want you to get that, you know, understood the next time you're playing the comparison game. The next influencer secret, so to speak, that I want to share is that we don't always know what people do for a full-time job. Now, hear, hear me out. I work with influencers who have this appearance on social media, you know, that they're doing Maybe they're posting in beauty or in fashion or in lifestyle, but then they're like a nurse in real life or a real estate agent, or they work in financial services. I mean, who knows, right? Not everyone is living a nomadic life, even though it may appear so. So don't assume just because you see them being an influencer that this is not their side hustle. It may not be their full-time income, and that's okay. A lot of times when you're starting out, it's most of the times, not a lot of times, People are still working. It's hard to make the influencer thing your full-time job. It takes a while to get there. So people are working corporate jobs, but they're maybe not be posting about their corporate job, right? So they're not like, oh, hey, I'm at the insurance agency today. You may not even know what they actually do for a living because you don't see that portion of them being shown online. So just have that in mind when you're, you know, again, maybe comparing yourself. And this also kind of leads into my third secret, but it's also kind of part of this one, which is sometimes influencers have clients that you don't see. So what I mean by this is we don't always get the sexy client that we want to work with, right? So let's just say you're a videographer or a photographer and you really want to work with travel brands, right? But you also need to make a living. So as a content creator, maybe you're working with like I don't know, like I said earlier, a real estate company or a car dealership or a brand that you may not be like, oh, that's not what I want to be. I want to be a travel creator and I only want to create travel content. Well, while that's where you want to be, you still have to make ends meet. But again, you as a consumer who is someone that is just, you know, consuming social media, you may not see that. You may not see their unsexy clients, but only see the really exciting ones. So Also, hopefully that helps put it into perspective. Another thing you need to know about your favorite influencer is guess what? They pitch too. It's not just sitting there and all the inbounding pitches come and all the brands are swarming to work with them. They are actively pitching new business, whether it's consulting, whether it's working with brands, whatever their mainstream, they are actively pitching. And, you know, it really comes down to, I think a lot of times we think that influencers are just you know, getting posting pretty pics or creating fun little pieces of content. 
but you don't know what went into it. You don't know if they had to pitch that, if they had to get on the negotiating table and really work that product to get it. You know, we don't know where who pitched who. I think a lot of times the assumption is, oh, they're working with brands and like that brand reached out to them. No, chances are they're probably working for it and pitching those brands cold, warm, hot, whatever. They're reaching out. So just know influencers pitch too. I think something that's also important to know in the influencer world is that a lot of times influencers are personal brands. So it looks like they're a one man show, but actually they have a whole team of people working behind to support them, to lift them from assistants to editors, to people that are their managers. I mean, it's not just them, but again, maybe on social media, you just see them, right? You just see that one person and you're comparing yourself to one person, but what you're only seeing is the tip of the iceberg. Cause guess what? Under what you see, they have an entire team of people pushing and working and helping them that they've been able to, again, pay from from their work in this business. So don't compare yourself. This is one of the biggest, I guess, secrets that people make it look like they do everything themselves when in fact they don't. And I love seeing influencers that shout out their team, that shout out the support that they have. It's like when you see the celebrity without the nanny, you know, and they're always doing the thing. And it's like, you know, you have the nanny there. And I love when people are honest and transparent about their teams because it just helps set the realistic expectation that we cannot do it all as one, just one person. I think another big reveal when it comes to the influencer world is knowing that they may be doing a lot of free collabs to keep their expenses really down. So for example, I was coaching a one-on-one with an influencer the other day and she literally got her entire home furnished, you know, on on trade. She gets all her travel paid for on trade. And it got me thinking, I was like, oh my God, like just my home interior for my new home, it costs like so much, right? The same thing with like travel. That's a big portion of a lot of normal people's budgets. But influencers, as smart as they are in their business, they're able to like lower their expenses. So perhaps they're able to afford things, you know, that other people may be saying like, oh, like, they, are, they seem to have this lavish lifestyle, but it's because their expenses are low. So if you, you know, the influencers that are working to get lots of free product, it's also allowing them to have the disposable income to, you know, make other purchases. I think when it comes to content and influencers, like a lot of times you'll see people posting like these awesome videos or like these awesome photos on Instagram and you're like, oh my God, how do they do that? Like, how do they do it all? Again, kind of to my point about teams, maybe they're not editing their photos themselves. Maybe they are using certain presets or maybe they have an editor that does all their, you know, editing, so to speak, whether it's on photo or video. But you're, again, making the assumption that it's them. Um, And I think that this is also helpful because it may relieve that pressure of having to be good at everything. In fact, when it's just better to figure out, okay, what should I focus on being good at and what else can I outsource? I do want to end by saying that many successful influencers, um, you know, they are not only investing in their business by, you know, learning different strategies for social, um, you know, different content strategies. They're also working with coaches. I work with lots of maybe your favorite influencers behind the scenes, helping them grow, helping them to continue to push themselves, um, you know. A lot of people, including myself, I have a mentor I go to to get a push, to get someone to brainstorm with, to get someone to keep me, you know, accountable. So if you're looking for that, I'm going to leave a link below on ways that you can work with me um, to help you on this new creator journey that you are embarking on. 
I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to our show and visit sidewalkerdaily.com for more resources on all things influencer marketing and social media. Until next time. Sign up for the newsletter so you never miss an update. on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Let me be straight with you. This is a radio commercial for three small business insurance. With three, your entire business is covered. So while you can't see the following scene, just know that this contractor's business is protected by three. Hey, toss me that drill. Yeah, man. Heads up. Oh, that looks expensive. Now this is an insurance moment, but Three's got it covered. Three is a product of Berkshire Hathaway Direct Insurance Company. Three, no nonsense, just common sense. Let me be straight with you. This is a radio commercial for Three Small Business Insurance. The policy has no fine print. It's clear what's covered. So while you can't see the following scene, just know that this pet store is protected by Three. Joe, did you leave the snake tank open? Look, I don't want to point fingers, but yes. It's fighting me. Sorry, sir. I'm calling my lawyer. They're going to need some help with this mess. Luckily, they have three. No fine print, just exceptional coverage. Three is a product of Berkshire Hathaway Direct Insurance Company. Three, no nonsense, just common sense. All right, welcome back to the Breakfast Connect show on Africa Business Radio. It's been a minute already. And uh, yes, we've been through our investment tip for the morning. We've been through the headlines. And it's time for us to get into our guest segment for today. You know, on Africa Business Radio, we are more than enthusiastic, more than interested in entrepreneurs and SMEs. And this is because they have a key role in ensuring economic growth in a sustainable and inclusive manner. What's more? Uh, they are very important source of new jobs, especially for the youth population. Well, our focus today on our guest segment will be on entrepreneurship and SME development in the coal city state, Enugu. And joining me for conversations is uh, the special advisor to the government of Enugu State on SME development and investment promotion, head. Enugu SME Center. Arinze Chile off here. Good morning, sir. It's great to have you on the show this morning. Hi, good morning. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Right. All right. So start a conversation. I'd, I'd like for us to start with uh, the project development of young entrepreneurs in Nigeria, most especially in Enugu State. What piqued your interest in that project? Um, uh, again, thanks for having me. Mm. Um, so, so just to give a small synopsis of how this started for me, I, I, it wasn't like a direct correlation. I didn't um, start inside the uh, SME development mm. space right away. Uh, my career started as an investment banker. Mm. Uh, I worked at Merrill Lynch uh, Credit Derivatives in New York before moving back to Nigeria in 2009. Uh, I then had a stint at Petiva. Um, is a boutique investment bank before moving to Afri Invest, where I had the bulk of my investment banking orientation. Um, so Afri Invest is a boutique investment bank. Um, in that case, I was a generalist. Um, being a generalist, you're not really specific to whether it's debt capital markets or corporate finance. So you mm. do everything. 
that really exposed me to different sectors and understanding how things work. Um, I did that for a couple of years, rising up the ranks. It was a great time. But um, I sort of had like my epiphany moments. I don't know if I should say it here, mm. but the dumbed down version of it was I was in a social setting with a couple of friends. Um, we were just, you know, had a few drinks talking about, you know, how the youth, uh, you know, were supposed to do the needful to, you know, take our beloved Nigeria to the next level. But um, after that, their side conversation or their parlor conversation, we, mm. you know, went for more night activities, spent a lot of money. And I woke up the next day feeling like, you know, just a big hypocrite. And um, yeah, so I, I took up a position in Anambra State. Um, initially, I was just looking for anywhere I could just go back and serve um, in governance yeah. in any position and the position that came up was in Anambra State uh, there was a position within the Ministry of Agriculture um, they were looking they had set up a committee that was going to drive the initiatives of the ministry um, the governor during his first term this is um, Governor William Obiano had identified agriculture as his focal point mm. and um, I was an investment uh, I was their investment manager in the committee so I'd left big money in um, investment banking mm. to go earn 50000 a month. Um, this was 2014, September. And um, within a, a couple of months, you know, just rising up the ranks, taking different positions. And within six months, I, I was nominated to set up the state's um, SME agency called the Anambra Small Business Agency. I was their pioneer executive director. I ran that for in conjunction with the MD for about five years. Um, 2019, the agency got the best MSME agency by the vice president. Um, the good works were seen by my working governor now, right honorable Ifanyo Guanyan. He brought me home to serve um, the great state of Enugu State in 2019, October. That's when I was sworn in, and um, yes, I think that that's just like what really prompted me to do this and yeah. over the years I've become an expert in that field. Mm. So from investment banking to SME development. Interesting. And mm. from all of your you know your experiences um, with SME development and young entrepreneurs over the years in Enugu State, it's it's quite clear that the state has a very good track record, you know, most especially in empowerment of the youth. Now, now since you assumed office in 2019 up until date, has there been some more changes? Uh, yes. So I got sworn in October 2019, moved into the office of Tanzania in November, and immediately we wanted to refocus our mantra. Um, so right now, the, the agency pretty much is the state developmental finance institution. Um, so we have a purview to facilitate access to resources for SMEs and micro enterprises in the states mm-hmm. to help them achieve um, sustainable development. And to be able to do this, we focused on four key tenants. Um, access to jobs through job creation schemes, which we, we couched on the initiative called Enugu Jobs. Um, access to capital, um, called Enugu Loans. Um, access to capacity, de- uh, capacity development initiative. So we call that one that Enugu Learning. And we have what we call, um, business support services for SME. Mm. So that's where we, 
we we, pro- we do our hackathons and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. So we did give four tenants. It's been very we've been focused on um, driving our initiatives in the state since we started. Um, I, I I I would like to. I don't know if I have time to go into each of these four or yes, please just go ahead. Okay, fantastic, fantastic. So under the job creation schemes, we. Um, it's something that I'll, I'll like to go into that in more detail. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably just mention the other three ones. So access to capital. We partnered. One of the key things that we did was partner with fintechs because okay. um, as a state, it's not, you know, funds are finite. And um, over the last few years, and especially with the downturn in the economy, mm-hmm. the applications to states have been reducing gradually over the last couple of months. Um, park location is significantly low, um, so states are having a hard time meeting their normal obligations um, outside of, you know, fund funded arrangements for MSMEs. Mm. So we had to go outside of the partner with fintech. Um, currently, we have a partnership with uh, Carbon. Um, they were formerly called Pay Later. Um, we also have a partnership with Lydia uh, and um, VFD Microfinance Bank. Um, with VFD Microfinance Bank, we have a particular loan product called the Enugu Studentpreneur Development Loan. Um, so that's a loan product strictly for students in universities that are engaged in um, entrepreneurial activity. Mm. So uh, everything is being run digitally. Um, you can go to the portal sme.gfdbank.com. Um, that's been making great strides. Um, with Carbon, we set up what we call the Enugu Business Support Cash Advance. Um, so where FMEs can get anywhere between five hundred thousand and yeah, between two hundred and fifty thousand upward to ten million, you know, businesses that have high turnover um, capacity, mm. they can get you know financing within that amount for close to three months. So same thing with Lydia. We also created a what we call the Enable Trader Facility with Carbon. So strictly for market traders, so those ones are with um of smaller smaller amounts. Um. Outside of that, we have uh, normal loan programs. Uh, we so the agency is the foremost entrepreneurial development institute in the state. Mm. So we are the facilitators for the Acmis loan. The Acmis is the agribusiness, mm-hmm. small and medium enterprise investment scheme. is being run by NISO Microfinance Bank. So in the last few years, we've been able to support the disbursement of over 150 million through this program. Um, there's still the micro, small, and medium enterprise development fund program, and that's been running for a number of years now with the CBN. So as we cover the loans, we pay back and also recycle disbursements. We have partnerships, um, joint funding programs with um, BOI. So from the aspect of um, access to capital, we've been trying to do a lot to make sure um, micro enterprises and small businesses have access to single-digit lending schemes. Mm. Um, and there's also been a targeted refocus towards micro lending within the agency. I think um, in the past, there used to be a lot of funds disbursed. Uh, I believe it should be funds that are given by banks, not um, an SME development agency. Mm. Um, so we also have um, so the capacity development programs I told you about. So every under an initiative called the Enable Skills Acquisition Masterclass is a free um, training program that we offer in the States for skills acquisition. 
So we've been able to empower a number of youths through this. Um, we have a female-only tech program. It's called Upskill Her. We're able to train about 500 um, young women in um, programming, digital marketing um, through this initiative. We also have a partnership with Jobberman on soft skills training and employability training. Um, then we have the access to capacity development, access mm-hmm. to our business and grants and business support facilities. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what we hosted the hackathon. We hosted the first NWSME hackathon in July of 2020. It was a rousing success. Um, the winner of the initiative of the initiative got 1.5 million naira in business grant. Um, it, it, there was a company, it's a company called Creative Energy. They were able to create a power source using cassava water, using the electrolytes in cassava water. So that was quite exciting. Um, so the, our flagship product in the last since I assumed office is what we call the Human Capital Development Loan. Um, these are zero-digit loan programs that are tailored specifically for one thing, mm. skill acquisition and um, to get technical training. Um, so if I can go into detail on this. So one of the main things um, my team noticed when we came in was the indebtedness um, from previous loan programs. So what we tried to do upon recovering them, we saw that, you know, it's easier Rather than giving a company 10, 15 million, that 10, 15 million can empower thousands and thousands of youth if you break down that figure into smaller micro credits. So, for example, I have a program with one of these human capital development loans with a company called Utiva. I don't, I don't know if you've heard of them. They are an EduTech company, mm. Utiva. Um, so it's it's called EduTech. On EduTech, we're looking to train a thousand youth in product design. Uh, programming and um, data analytics. So the first batch of them of 250 graduated in December. We're currently onboarding another batch of 250. So before third quarter, we should finish with this. And um, that program had been subsidized from about 100,000, 200,000 to 20,000. So what happens is you have the opportunity, once selected for the program, because you go through a series of assessments, you can either pay the subsidized rate um, up front or you take a loan to pay for it. Mm. So you can imagine rather than giving one company 20 million, you can empower a thousand youths which has a larger um, macroeconomic effect because they'll probably have one, two, three dependents. Because mm. what we try to do after this training is get them access to jobs, uh, support their entrepreneurial ventures so they can go to the next level and give them enough time to repay. So through this systems of employment and systems of entrepreneurial support, they can pay us over um, a number of months. So, for example, this program is 20000 The training is for three months, uh, and they get support um, support services for an additional six months. Mm. So, an additional three months. So, in total, it's months straight. And they have to pay us in seven months. So, imagine paying 20000 in seven months. You know, it's, it's not something that will burden a lot of people. You know, so we have a number of initiatives to run through this. I don't know if I should go through every single one of them. All so right. We have, um, 
okay. we'll get to some others much later in the conversation. I mean, that's a lot of empowerment okay. initiatives going on there from the HCDL to the hackathon. And uh, yes, you mentioned that um, in July last year, um, there was a hackathon somewhat training that went down and someone had to, you know, cash out a 1.5 million naira. Is this like a yearly event that takes place? So the the idea with a SME hackathon was to make it a quarterly event. Um, so the first one being last year, application started in July. Um, I think by September. So application started in July. We got over 300 applicants um, that had some good innovative products. Um, we identified about 25 of them that we deemed were disruptive, whilst it was 10 of them that were marketable. Mm. So it was that 10 that went for the competition. Um, we had a number of people with innovative products. Um, there, there, there was a 14-year-old girl um, that has set up what we call, she set up a company called Teen Coding Hub. Mm. So it teaches teens and um, kids how to code, HTML, CSS, build websites. Um, we had a company that uh, created a camera that uses AI to detect, um, you know, the positioning of the face mask and things of that nature. We had a recycling company that was doing some innovative stuff. So we had a number of youth that had very marketable ideas. So we put that in. We had the hackathon, the top three emerged. Mm. We now energy using uh, cassava water as a power source. Um, so the next one was supposed to hold in December, but unfortunately because of, you know, COVID had reached. Yeah. Um, a significant level we had to push that back while looking to hold one between March or April. So ideally we wanted to be a quarterly series, but considering the terrain wide now with the global pandemic, um, we should be pushing for a biannual event. Hmm. The state government has obviously done a whole lot and so has the federal government. I mean, they came up with the MSME Survival Fund, uh, the 75 billion naira support for vulnerable MSMEs. Has the Enigo state government tapped into this yet, especially your office? Has that fund been used to also, you know, assist MSMEs as, as much as every other initiative that you've been into? Oh, yes, definitely. So, coincidentally, I'm the focal person for Enugu State on the survival fund to all 36 states, including the FCT, are participating in this program. So, each state nominates a focal person that will drive the grant programs under this initiative. So, like you know, the 75 million billion naira MSME survival grants couldn't have come at a better time. I think mm-hmm. it has. It has done a lot to, you know, assuage the situation on ground. I think there are six grant programs within that structure. There is what they call the TSC formalization grant, where certain states have different allocations. Kaduna station grant for every state for 6,606 passes to provide um, free business name register and support grant, so 2,425, where they'll provide one-time grant payment for artisans, so skilled laborers, the max to the tune of 30,000. This was done last year. It was very successful. We've also finalized the CAC formalization grants. We've submitted all the applications to the CAC. They are processing them. Um, in batches, they are releasing CAC incorporation documents for business names. So as we get it by email, we send it to the 
individual that requested it and it goes a long way because optimization mm-hmm. of your business like it really is the first step to financial freedom true there was the transport fantastic so the transport scheme registered transporters in the states allocation for 4050 slots spread between members in NURTW mm. return Atomoras, just all of them. So we even included Tipa's Association, Wilbur Association, just all the associations involved in taxis, mass transit, taxi, and it was a very successful event. We wrapped the enumeration three weeks ago. The Survival Fund team has promised disbursement within the next few weeks, so we're quite excited about that. Mm. Um, they there was also the payroll support grants, which was fantastic. That was a fantastic initiative where they provide um payroll support for businesses with a minimum of three to a maximum of 50 staff. So they provide um, anywhere between 30000 and 50000 for a maximum of 10 staff per company. So that goes a long way. So you can imagine for three months, you can imagine your business, you get 1.5 million support to pay salaries. Mm. So that really went a, a long way. Um, right now, there are two programs that are currently ongoing. There's a MSME grant. So for the whole country, there's an allocation of 100,000. That's more um, first come, first serve. Each MSME that qualifies gets 50,000. And there's a scheme called the Guaranteed Offtake Scheme, where MSMEs have a purchase order of 150,000 to buy specific products like face masks, processed foods, things of that nature, mm-hmm. supplied to a specific warehouse within the state and the state provides a list of some of the less privileged and vulnerable people to provide those funds to provide those goods to. Mm. So that's currently ongoing i think it's going to run for another three weeks the good thing about this is as a state government you know we are prudent enough to replicate some of these grants programs as state initiatives yeah so for 2021 under the Enable states under my next project we're also going to do the Enable version of the cac formalization grants and good state version of the artisan and transport grants as well as the payroll support grants mm. this is also in line with the world bank cares program so we're quite excited about that mm. all right i mean this is a lot and very impressive i must say <laughs> yes last year towards the end of last year and even this year into this year there were myriads and myriads of msme programs initiatives to help fund you know entrepreneurs and startups and it was overwhelming at a point and a lot of fraudsters even took advantage there were links flying about how to you know tap into all of this funds. so now i have you here how can entrepreneurs and you know business men and women partake of this funds talking about the msme grant you mentioned the guarantee offtake scheme even the artisan and transport grant and some others that are yet to come how can they partake of this so the programs are quite simplified we what we try and do at the agency is we try to set up we market these products radio social media we put it everywhere mm. do sensitization tours we also try and um provide application assistance so if you can apply on your own um, you can come to the agency we help you apply we, we also created sub portals that are simpler for them to apply through them when once we collect those, that information we help them apply digitally i think although we met all our slots mm. uh, in terms of what was allocated to the state it wasn't an easy exercise for me and my team just because of the standpoint of 
you know, um, what are people referred to as scam? Yeah, you know, a lot of things they believe they are scams, and I can't necessarily blame them. There, there are a lot of unscrupulous people online that put up all sorts of information and you know, phishing viruses that once you click on it, you're finished. So True. that's why that sensitization was needed and for you to have the stakeholder back mm-hmm. and support of the agency. So really it was quite a manual process, cold calls, calling thousands of people. Um, so what I will say is anytime an entrepreneur comes across some kind of funding program yeah. and they are skeptical about it, the first thing they should do is just, you know, do their research. They should do their research, go online, verify the information before they go ahead. You know, mm-hmm. I, I don't think it, the first thing to do is not dismiss it as a scam. Right. I think first do your research, all the information will be available online. If it's something that doesn't make sense to you, you can call. You can also, we also have um, a call center at the agency. You know, we get a number of calls. Ask, oh, because typically what happens, especially in the States, once there's an initiative and anyone puts SME inside, mm. <laughs> they feel like we're involved. So we get a number of, oh, I guess, are you doing yeah. that? So we're just trying to educate them and let them know. Um, this is not from us. We do our research to find if it's real or fake. We let them know if it's fake. We let them know. Mm. So I think it just has to be doing your research and not always being skeptical. Right. Amazing stuff. Amazing. St- especially now that a lot of businesses are struggling with um, everything that went down last year. Some could not even take it at all. Some went under and some are trying to, you know, crawl back up again in 2021. So, yes, great job you guys are doing. Now, any future projects coming up? Yes, definitely. So for 2021, um, I mentioned the grant programs we'll be doing. We also, one of the other grant pro- programs we'll be doing is an offshoot of one of the products that we have. So we have a product called Engu Wi-Fi. Um, it, um, it's a data reselling product that we use for job creation at the state. So there's a grant that we offer for small businesses to get them digi- um, digitized. So we're providing um, internet, um, free internet connection to SMEs in the state. Mm. Then on that, also under the HDL program, um, we currently have a initiative that we're running with iCreate. I don't know if you've heard of them. Um, iCreate. iCreate, yeah. So they have this killer platform. So we're, we're looking to to pretty much modernize the apprenticeship model um, for construction jobs. So mm. that's been going on smoothly. Um, for the creative industry, we we have a number of things that we'll be doing because it's that HCDL model is very fungible because Pretty much, you're pushing the job creation to the applicants. Mm. You're pushing it to them and saying, "Look, it's your determination that will take you to the next phase." Because typically, what happens when empowerment is you want to empower everyone, but there are some youth that you know what, what we call the political youth that might not be necessarily inclined to get whatever you're be, they're being empowered on, uh, and um, anything free is typically taken for granted. So this gives them the honors to be determined and take um, the initiative by themselves. We'll be also setting up um, SME, uh, an, an SME, what we call a facility, SME facility park. Um, just to explain how it'll be, imagine just a big warehouse that's like a pay as you go kind of facility. So you can come there, be a market woman, there'll be a section for agro processing machines, mm. you pay a um, nominal fee. Use the machines you go, you're a teller, there'll be machines there. 
your um into machine fabrication there'll be late machines there so it's sort of like a shared services platform for um, um for SME. Um, we'll also be setting up a fashion training and production facility. Right. Um, so we'll be doing a number of things, additional loan programs, hopefully. Um, this is what we have in our budget. We're working towards at least um, withdrawing significantly from that. But you know, budgets are a determination of what you can generate internally. But we're quite hopeful that we'll meet our targets for 2021. Mm. All right. I'd like for us to have further conversations about your future projects coming up, especially of particular interest to me, actually, is uh, the apprenticeship model in construction, especially when you look at how much that model has contributed to job creation, especially in the eastern part of the country. So, yes, maybe in another conversation, we'll talk more about that. That would be fantastic. So you can check them out. Um, the, the website on that one is called EnableSkillers.com. Okay. The partnership with iCreate. Um, the partnership where I create using the Askillers platform. I think um, this could be a game changer because it's, uh, it's using tech to create a disruptive model mm. um, in terms of empowering the apprentice, rewarding the master craftsman, and um, creating that ecosystem where you have managers that supervise them and also assist in getting jobs for them. So it's definitely, if I'm invited next time, I can go into much detail in that. But you can check the site out, enugoskillers.com. Um, yes, you, you, you'll find a lot on it. There was a press release on this, um, the last few weeks. Right. Enigoscalers.com. Thank you so much, um, Mr. Arinze Chile of here for doing this with me this morning. Much appreciated. Um, I'm, I'm very glad to be on this platform. I'm a big believer in, uh, getting information out there, you know, using these new communication tools available for us. Mm podcast, radio, they are the future and I'm happy to be here I'm ready to support the station anywhere I can mm. because I think it's important to get information out there Great job you're doing, thank you so much Have a great day Alright, Dana Rinze Chile Ofia is a special advisor to the Governor of Enugu State on SME Development and Investment Promotion, Head Enugu SME Center Let me be straight with you. This is a radio commercial for three small business insurance. The policy has no fine print. It's clear what's covered. So while you can't see the following scene, just know that this pet store is protected by three. Joe, did you leave the snake tank open? Look, I don't want to point fingers, but yes. It's fighting me. Sorry, sir. I'm calling my lawyer. They're going to need some help with this mess. Luckily, they have three. No fine print, just exceptional coverage. Three is a product of Berkshire Hathaway Direct Insurance Company. Three. No nonsense, just common sense. Let me be straight with you. This is a radio commercial for three small business insurance. The policy has no fine print. It's clear what's covered. So while you can't see the following scene, just know that this pet store is protected by three. Joe, did you leave the snake tank open? Look, I don't want to point fingers, but yes. It's fighting me. Sorry, sir. I'm calling my lawyer. They're going to need some help with this mess. Luckily, they have three. No fine print, just exceptional coverage. Three is a product of Berkshire Hathaway Direct Insurance Company. Three, no nonsense, just common sense.
It's TED Talks Daily. I'm your host, Elise Hugh. You're about to hear a talk from a historian who is going to challenge the way you think about reality. Big promise, I know, but in his 2020 talk at TEDx Ohio State University, Greg Anderson uses a different perspective on the human past to at least encourage us to change the way we think about ourselves. And maybe in rethinking our current realities, we can make a less destructive reality in the future. In the next few minutes, I hope to change the way you think about the very nature of reality itself. I'm not a physicist and I'm not a philosopher. I'm a historian. And after studying the ancient Greeks and many other pre-modern peoples for more than 20 years as a professional, I've become convinced that they all lived in real worlds very different from our own. Now, of course, you and I here today, we take it for granted that there's just one ultimate reality out there, our reality, a fixed universal world of experience ruled by timeless laws of science and nature. But I want you to see things differently. I want you to see that humans have always lived in a pluriverse of many different worlds, not in a universe of just one. And if you're willing to see this pluriverse of many worlds, it will fundamentally change, I hope, the way you think about the human past and hopefully the present and the future as well. Now let's get started by asking three basic questions about the contents of our reality, the real world that you and I share right here, right now. First of all, what is it that makes something real in our real world? Well, for us, real things are material things, things made of matter that we can somehow see, like atoms, people, trees, mountains, planets. By the same token, invisible, immaterial things, like gods and demons, heavens and hells, these are considered unreal. They're simply beliefs, subjective ideas that exist only in the realm of the mind. To be real, a thing must exist objectively in some visible material form, whether our minds can perceive it or not. Second, what are the most important things in our real world? Answer, human things. People, cities, societies, cultures, governments, economies. Why is this? Well, because we humans think we're special. We think we're the only creatures on the planet who have things like language, reason, free will. By contrast, non-human things to us are just parts of nature, a mere backdrop to human culture, a mere environment of things that we feel entitled to use however we want. And third, what does it mean to be a human in our real world? Well, it means being an individual, a person who lives ultimately for oneself. We think nature has made us this way, giving each and every one of us all of the reason, the rights, the freedom, and the self-interest to thrive and compete with other individuals for all of life's important resources. But I'm suggesting to you that this real world of ours is neither timeless nor universal. 
is just one of countless different real worlds that humans have experienced in history. What then would another world look like? The real world of the classical Athenians in ancient Greece. Now, of course, we usually know the Athenians as our cultural ancestors, pioneers of our Western traditions, philosophy, democracy, drama, and so forth. But their real world was nothing like our own. The real world of the Athenians was alive with things that we would consider immaterial and thus unreal. It pulsated with things like gods, spirits, nymphs, fates, curses, oaths, souls, and all kinds of mysterious energies and magical forces. Indeed, the most important things in their real world were not humans at all, but gods. Why? Because gods were awesome, literally. They controlled all the things that made life possible. Sunshine, rainfall, crop harvest, childbirth, personal health, family wealth, sea voyages, battlefield victories. There were over 200 gods in Athens, and they were not remote, detached divinities watching over human affairs from afar. They were really there, immediately there in experience, living in temples, attending sacrifices, mingling with the Athenians at their festivals, banquets, and dances. And in the real world of the Athenians, humans did not live apart from nature. Their lives were dictated by the rhythms of the seasons and by the life cycles of crops and animals. Indeed, the land of the Athenians itself was not just a piece of property or territory. It was a goddess, a living goddess that had once given birth to the first Athenians and had nurtured and cared for all of their descendants ever since with her precious gifts of soils, water, stone, and crops. Indeed, if anything should pollute her soils with unlawful bloodshed, it had to be expelled immediately beyond her boundaries, whether it was a man, an animal, or just a fallen roof tile. And in the real world of the Athenians, there were no individuals. All Athenians were inseparable from their families. And all Athenian families were expected to live together and work together as a single body, like cells of a living organism. They called this social body simply demos, the people. And they called their way of life demokratia. But it was nothing like our modern democracy, because Athenians were not born to be individuals living for themselves. They were born to serve and preserve their, the families and the social body that had given them life in the first place. In sum, the whole Athenian way of being human was radically different from our own. Nature had programmed them to live as one, as a unitary social body, and it had designed them expressly to coexist and collaborate with all manner of non-human beings especially their 200 gods and their divine Earth Mother. Life in Athens was thus sustained by what we could call a cosmic ecology, a symbiotic ecology of gods, motherland, and people. Now, of course, to us today, in our real world, we look at their real world, and, well, it looks 
strange, weird, bizarre, exotic, and of course, unreal. But it has many major things in common with the real worlds experienced by numerous other pre-modern peoples, including, for example, the ancient Egyptians, ancient Chinese, and the peoples of pre-colonial Peru, Mexico, India, Bali, Hawaii. In all of those pre-modern real worlds, gods controlled all of the conditions of existence. Non-humans were always uh, expected to collaborate with humans and vice versa. And humans were expected to serve their communities, not to live for themselves as individuals. Indeed, in the grand scheme of history, it's our real world, our reality, that is the great exception to the rule, the exotic one, the strange one. Only in our real world is reality itself a purely material order. Only in our real world are non-humans always subordinate to humans. And only in our real world are humans born to be individuals. Why this uniqueness? Well, because our real world was shaped and forged in a unique environment, a historically unprecedented environment in early modern Europe with its scientific revolution, its enlightenment, its novel, experimental capitalist way of life. Yet despite this uniqueness, we just take it for granted that our reality is the one true reality. That all humans in history have lived in only our real world, whether they knew it or not. And just think for a moment of the colossal arrogance of this assumption. Basically, we're saying, we modern Westerners are right about reality, and everybody else in all of history is wrong. Basically, we're saying that all of those extraordinary civilizations of the past were really just lucky accidents because they were all founded on nothing more than myths, illusions, and false ideas about reality. Why are we so certain that we're right? Why do we just take it for granted that we know more? Why do we struggle to take seriously the real worlds of pre-modern peoples? Well, because we think our modern sciences provide the only truly objective knowledge of reality. But do they? For more than 100 years now, the very idea of an objective reality has been seriously and continually questioned by experts in many different fields, from physics and biology to philosophy. Basically, these experts would suggest that reality is not simply a material order given to us by nature. It is something that humans actively participate in producing when their minds interact with their environment. Here's a way to think about it. In order to make sense of experience, every people in the past, in effect, had to devise a model of the real world. They would then use that model as the basis for their whole way of life, all of its practices, its norms, its values. And if that way of life proved to be successful in practice, sustainable, then the truth of the model would be confirmed by the evidence of everyday experience. It works! And thus, once the model became internalized in minds and baked into the environment, the effect 
of a stable real world would be generated by ongoing interactions between the two, between minds on the one hand, environments on the other. Let's take a quick example. Why are we so convinced in our modern world that we're all ultimately natural individuals? Well, because a bunch of social scientists in early modern Europe decided that we were. And because their model of a world full of natural competitive individuals became the basis for a new capitalist way of life that generated unprecedented levels of wealth, at least for the lucky few. And because all of us who've been raised in capitalist nations ever since have been continually socialized to be individuals by our families, our schools and our societies, and because we are treated precisely as individuals almost every day of our lives by the structures which control those lives, like our liberal democracy and our capitalist economy. In other words, our minds and our environment continually conspire to make our individuality seem entirely natural. In sum, no human being has ever experienced a truly objective reality. Different peoples have always experienced different realities, each one shaped by whatever model of the world happened to be embedded in minds and environment at the time. In other words, humans have always lived in a pluriverse of many different real worlds, not in a universe of just one. Let me close with three thoughts that follow from this conclusion. First of all, we modern Westerners need to stop thinking that all pre-modern peoples are somehow more primitive or less enlightened than ourselves. Their real world, with all their gods and magical forces, were just as real as our own. Indeed, those real worlds anchored ways of life that sustained real lives of multitudes for hundreds, sometimes thousands of years. Their real worlds were different. They were not wrong. Second, we modern Westerners need to get over ourselves. We need to be a little more humble. For all of its extraordinary technological accomplishments, our brave new modern real world has imperiled the whole future of the planet in barely 300 years. It's made possible all manner of historical horrors, genocides across entire continents, mass exploitation of colonized peoples, industrial servitude, two disastrous world wars, the Holocaust, nuclear warfare, species extinctions, environmental degradation, factory farming, and of course, global warming. The evidence is there if you want to see it. Our model of reality has failed catastrophically in practice. Third, other models and other real worlds are possible. Other worlds are being lived right now as we speak in what remains of history's pluriverse. In places like Amazonia, the Andes, southern Mexico, northern Canada, Australia, and all the other places where indigenous peoples are struggling to preserve their highly sustainable ancestral ways of life, to prevent them being destroyed by modernity's ever-expanding universe. I suggest 
that all of these non-modern peoples, past and present, have so much to teach us about living more sustainable lives in other possible worlds. So let's start right now to try to learn from them before it's too late. Let's try to magnify our imaginations. Let's start to imagine other possible ways of being human in other possible worlds. Thank you. Hey, TED Talks Daily listeners. I'm Adam Grant. I host another podcast from the TED Audio Collective called Work Life, where we explore the science of making work not suck. We're doing a special series right now called Taken for Granted, where I interview my favorite thinkers about the opinions and assumptions we should all be rethinking. My next guest is Brene Brown. I don't think we can make the mistake of assuming that everyone wants brave leadership. Find Work Life on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. TED Talks Daily is hosted by me, Elise Hugh, and produced by TED. Theme music is from Allison Layton Brown, and our mixer is Christopher Fazy Bogan. We record the talks at TED events we host or from TEDx events, which are organized independently by volunteers all over the world. And we'd love to hear from you. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or email us at podcasts at TED.com. So if you're using anything other than Indeed for your hiring, you are wasting your time. You can hire great people faster with Indeed and only pay for results and get back time in your schedule. Indeed.com is a hiring site that helps you find quality candidates with Indeed Instant Match. Indeed searches through the millions of resumes in their database to help show you great candidates instantly, like that. And now with Indeed's new Instant Match feature, you can view quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed fit your description immediately after upgrading a job post. Unlike some other hiring sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility, delivering a quality shortlist faster, and there's no long-term contracts either. You can pause your account at any time and you only pay for what you need, and they help ensure that you get and show up at the right place at the right time in front of the right candidates. According to Indeed data, candidates invited to apply through Instant Match are three times more likely to apply to your job than those who only see it in search. So, you want your quality shortlist fast? You need Indeed. Right now, our listeners get a free $75 credit to upgrade your job post at indeed.com slash SPI. This is Indeed's best offer available anywhere. Get a free $75 credit at indeed.com slash SPI. That's indeed.com slash SPI. Offer valid through March 31st. Terms and conditions apply. If you've followed me for a while, you'll know that I'm a huge believer in self-improvement. It's a never-ending journey that I've found the perfect tool to help with, Himalaya. If you're not familiar with Himalaya, it's the new audio-first learning platform with over 150 courses for personal and professional development. Their courses are taught by world-class thought leaders, ranging from Ivy League professors to Nobel Prize winners like the New York Times bestselling author Malcolm Gladwell and mindfulness expert Sharon Salzberg. But don't let that fool you into thinking these are long, boring lectures because they're not. Each Himalaya course is broken down into convenient 15-minute lessons, kind of like podcast episodes, actually. They contain only the most relevant and actionable content you need to transform your life with zero fluff. It's perfect for busy people like you and me. You can learn more in less time, and Himalaya's curated learning tracks make it easy to find courses you'll love. I found one from Tim Ferriss called Jedi Mind Tricks, and in true Tim Ferriss nature, it's just such good information. 
from setting anti-goals to beating procrastination, bootstrapping your startup, all this kind of stuff. There's a Malcolm Gladwell course. There's one from Les Brown on motivation, just also great. And this just scratches the surface of their extensive library. There's something for everybody. So trust me when I say you need to try Himalaya today. And for a limited time, my listeners can get a 14-day free trial. That's double the normal trial time. Just go to Himalaya.com slash SPI and enter promo code SPI. Again, that's Himalaya.com slash SPI, promo code SPI. Today, we're talking about podcast advertising and sponsorship. And this is really important whether you have a podcast or not, because you might have a business right now or one day, and you wanna do podcast advertising. You want another podcaster to mention your product. And we're gonna talk about all the ins and outs about this little world of podcast advertising, because guess what? There are millions and millions and millions of dollars being spent between podcasters and advertisers It's crazy, it's going wild. And we have none other than Heather Osgood from True Native Media to give us the lowdown on exactly how all this works. Her and her agency have actually helped us book sponsors for this podcast and for Ask Pat. We're gonna talk about that relationship, what working with an agency is like. If you don't have the ability to have enough download numbers to have an agency. We're gonna talk about how to do this on your own. And we're also, like I said, at the end, gonna talk specifically about, well, what can you do if you have a company and you wanna advertise? Who might you look toward and what kinds of deals might those look like? And again, this is really, really key because there's a lot of money being spent between podcasters and advertisers right now. And the more you know about this, the more and better prepared you will be. I get specific with my questions like, how many downloads do you need to even attract an advertiser? all that kind of stuff and more in this episode. Welcome in, let's do this. Welcome to the Smart Passive Income Podcast, where it's all about working hard now, so you can sit back and reap the benefits later. And now your host, he dips sour cream and onion chips in vinegar, Pat Flynn. What's up, everybody? Pat Flynn here, and welcome to session 462 of the Smart Passive Income Podcast. My name is Pat Flynn, here to help you make more money, save more time, and help more people, too. Appreciate you being here. You know what this episode's about. I don't need to tell you again. Let's get right into it. This is Heather Osgood from truenativemedia.com. She's helped us out so much, and I know she's gonna help you out, too. Here we go. Heather, welcome to Smart Passive Income. Thanks for being here with us today. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me, Pat. I'm excited to talk about one of my favorite topics, which is podcast advertising. You have a passion for podcast advertising, I know. How did this even start for you before we get into a lot of the how-tos for everybody listening? Yeah, for sure. Well, I started my career in advertising just in general, actually started with radio advertising. And I really have always been passionate about what businesses can create through advertising. And I had a company that I'd owned for about 10 years. I sold that company. And for the first time in my adult life, I didn't have anything to do really, um, which was kind of crazy. So I started listening to podcasts. And the more I listened, the more I was like, gosh, there's all these great shows that don't have ads in them, which seemed really bizarre to me. So I kind of dug in a little bit deeper and I found that really the top 1% of podcasts were being represented super well 
They had lots of ads, but then there was everybody else. And I thought, gosh, you know, most of the shows I was listening to that I was super passionate and excited about didn't have any ads in them, which seems strange. So I founded True Native Media actually five years ago now, which is kind of crazy in January of 2016, because I wanted to help those podcasts out there that weren't being serviced. And I knew that there was so much we could do with the power of podcast advertising. So I wanted to bring that both to the advertiser as well as the podcaster. Awesome. Well, th- thank you for that. And make sure you stick around and listen. Even if you don't have a podcast, we're going to talk about a lot of things that are going to be beneficial for you, principle-wise, for whatever business you might have. And also, if you have a business, how might we utilize existing podcasts to spread the word of our business and get in front of newer audiences, too? So we'll talk about all those kinds of things today. But I'd love to ask just a question that I know is on everybody's mind. And when it comes to podcast advertising, I know that the, the number one question I often get is, well, how many downloads do I need? right? It's always coming down to download numbers. Is is that in fact where we start? And if there is a number, what is that number? That is such a great question. And it is certainly one that I get asked a lot as well. And you know, I, I really, I don't personally love it when I hear people in the industry say, oh, you don't need to worry about your downloads. Downloads aren't important. They are important, especially if you are looking to monetize your podcast through advertising. And the reason that they're important is because the advertiser has to know that they're reaching a large enough group of people to really move the needle, right? If they're not going to reach enough people, then it's not going to be beneficial to them. And it has to be a win-win situation. Now, the question, which is the hardest one to answer, is how many downloads should you be getting? And and what is that correct number? First, I always think that it's so important as podcasters that you understand your numbers, right? So make sure that you understand how many downloads you're getting. And if you're going to be running embedded ad reads, you need to look at how many downloads you're getting per episode in a 30-day period. Oftentimes, people come to me and they'll say things like, I get 100,000 downloads a month. And it's like, well, that's great. Or I get 20,000 downloads per month. That's great if you're set up to do dynamic ad insertion. But if you're doing embedded ad reads, the advertiser is only going to get in front of the people who listen to that one episode. So you need to make sure that you understand, are you going to be doing embedded ad reads? Or do you have the technology and capacity with your hosting provider to do dynamic ad insertion? So if you're looking to do embedded ad reads, I would say that depending on the type of podcast that you have, you can start anywhere from about a 1,000 downloads up into 5,000. If you've got a podcast where it's super, super niche and you're reaching a really targeted group of people... At 1,000 listeners, that can be great, right? If I'm looking to reach government contractors or physicians or veterinarians, those 1,000 people are super valuable. However, if you've got a comedy or, or an entertainment podcast and you're getting 1,000 downloads, that's not really going to be enough if your listenership is very broad. So when you hit about that 5,000 download per episode range, that's a really good number, I think, to start really kind of looking to explore advertisers. And if you are getting a lot of downloads because you've got a really good back catalog, then dynamic ad insertion can be a good option for you as well. And embedded ads are when you record the ad in the actual file that you upload to your host. So it's kind of embedded into the episode, which you can't easily remove and then replace with something else like you could with dynamic ad insertion. And just for you listeners who are out there who might be considering dynamic ad insertion for your podcast, it is a lot more expensive for sure to have access to that technology. And so definitely 
understand your numbers, whether or not there's an ROI there for you. For us, we do, and many of you listening might know this because you hear different and updated ads within our current episodes and our back catalog as well, which is the cool part about it. But it is uh, it is definitely a little bit more of an investment. So 5,000 is sort of the baseline number. I definitely also want to have people realize that, okay, you don't have to wait till 5,000 to start generating an income. There's several different ways to generate an income. And there could be other cases where maybe there's just a, a, a really amazing, perfect company who realizes that, okay, those thousand people, like you said, are right up their alley. They're just the exact target market. And I love the examples you use, like physicians or, or, or what have you, especially that, which comes with a higher you know, you consider physicians, they have money, they want to spend money. You know, this is why their ads on Google AdWords are more expensive for target keywords like physician, doctor, lawyer, anything business or money related. Often you can you can find advertisers with less downloads. But in general, I think 5,000 is great. Now, I know that and, and of course, we've been working with you and your company, True Native Media, and you've been helping us to sell ad spots, which has been amazing. What's the minimum requirement to, for you and, and for, you know, I know you know other agents out there, but like if I have 5,000 downloads per episode, is that enough to work with somebody to help me sell those spots or am I going to have to do that all myself? If you have 5,000 downloads per episode, your show is a little bit small for what we would be looking you know, for at True Native Media. So typically, we're looking for 10,000 downloads per episode if you're going to be doing embedded ad reads. If you're set up to do dynamic insertion, 20,000 downloads per month collectively across your, your entire catalog works for us. However, there are, of course, other options besides just True Native Media. There are good options like AdvertiseCast, which is an online platform where you can go and list your podcast and you could list that at any size. I would say I probably wouldn't recommend it if you're doing less than a thousand downloads per episode, but you can use Advertise Cast. There are other resources. I know Podcorn is one in the space that's really been, you know, knocking on some doors. And really the ad space in podcasting right now is just exploding. So there are going to be lots of other options. You have to really determine as a podcaster as well as an advertiser what kind of ad is going to be appropriate for you. So if you're looking to do a host red endorsement ad like you do, Pat, you do really great. I know this morning when I was listening to the show, we heard, you know, Headspace, which is an app that I believe you personally have used for a really long time. So if you're looking to do these host red endorsement ads like Pat does, then you really, you know, you have to be clear about what you're looking for. A lot of the platforms are going to look to maybe put more of a programmatic style ad, which is something that's been pre-recorded. You know, think about maybe those Geico ads getting in there. So determine as a podcaster, what is going to be best for you? Are you looking to do host red endorsement ads? Are you okay if, you know, hey, Geico is going to pay you $20, you know, to put an ad in your podcast and you're totally cool with that, right? So just determine what is going to be best for you. But if you are looking for representation, typically, I would say most firms like True Native Media are at about that 10,000 download per episode range, but the platforms you can start much lower. Awesome. Okay, so let's start with those maybe who aren't quite at that level yet. And then we'll kind of get to that point. But those who can't yet work with an agency to help them sell ads, obviously, they can sell ads on their own. And obviously, I'd love to ask, like, how do, how do we go about doing that? No matter the number of downloads, like, where do we even start with reaching out to companies to see if they'd even want to advertise on our show? And what do those deals look like? 
Yeah, for sure. So I always recommend that people first start by getting a really clear understanding of their target audience. So who is listening to your show? If you don't know who's listening to your show, it's going to be really difficult for you to go out and sell that to an advertiser or a business, right? Because that business is going to have a core demographic that they're looking to reach. And you want to make sure that those really align. So get very clear on who your target audience is and who is listening to your show. If that means you have to run a survey, if that means you need to maybe dig in more to your social media stats, but determine who's listening. Next, you really want to think about putting together a nice media kit for yourself. And I feel like when I say things like that, people get really overwhelmed, like what's a media kit and what should be in a media kit? And you know, certainly there are resources out there. We try to post them as frequently as possible, but essentially a media kit should, should answer that, you know, who are you? Why should somebody advertise? Who is listening? It doesn't have to be super in depth. It can be just a really nice one sheet that talks about yourself as the host, your audience. And then of course you want to talk about rates, right? How much you're going to be charging for ads in those. So get those basics down first. The other thing I always really encourage podcasters to do is... I'm shocked by the number of podcasts that don't have a website. So if you don't have a website, just build one, right? If you're thinking you want to get advertisers, having that is going to be a really nice digital footprint for you that's going to allow the advertiser to dig into what it is that they're going to be connecting with, right? They're going to connect with you, the podcaster, and they're also going to connect with your digital footprint, right? They are going to essentially partner with you. So they want to make sure that they are partnering with somebody that they you know, want to be partnered with. So have that information out there. And if you have, you know, a section of your website that talks about advertising, when someone is interested, they can very easily find the information they need. So really kind of try to start with a good foundation before you even make that first phone call or that outreach, right? Once you have the foundation set, then really it's a matter of determining the types of businesses that would benefit from your audience. I notice that oftentimes people go right to the top. They say things like, Nike's got deep pockets. I want Nike to sponsor the show or Amazon would be great. Amazon's killing it right now. Even though those companies have really large marketing budgets, they are the hardest sales to get because there's a bazillion layers between you, the podcaster, and the person who's going to say, yeah, that seems like a good plan. So it is better oftentimes to identify companies that are, you know, in a similar position to you, the podcaster, right? If you're, if you're a really successful podcaster, and you've got millions of downloads, then bigger companies are going to be interested. If you're a smaller podcast, and you've got 2000 downloads, you know, take a look around, maybe even in your local community, you know, can you find somebody at a chamber mixer or at a a networking event that has maybe an e-commerce store? And, you know, those are the types of people that you can really connect with that you can benefit from. And so once you identify those those companies that are going to be a good fit for you, then you're going to want to, you know, outreach to them, whether it's an email, whether it's a phone call. I know that things are difficult in person nowadays, but even going into a business and saying, hey, have you thought about podcast advertising? And really, that's that's when all the real work begins of right. <laughs> you know, nurturing these leads to try and get advertisers. So I know that there's a lot there, but there are certainly lots of steps that podcasters can take to monetize their podcast on their own. Perfect. Okay, so let's go down the line here. You said that one of the first things you need to do is understand just who is in your audience and find out more info about them. What exactly is the kind of information that advertisers want to hear? Is it age, 
demographic? What is it exactly that we want to search for? Perfect. Yeah, you want... Age is really important. So how old are the people that are listening to your show? Gender is also important. If you're, you know, if your audience is 90% male, you're probably not going to want to sell, you know, to a, a female skewing company, right? So age, gender, important. Income level is also important. That can be more difficult to get. So, you know, really doing a survey is the best way to get that information. College education. So do they have college education? Those are typically, I would say, the building blocks of where most companies are going to look for demographical information. Beyond that, you could dig in more to what their lifestyle is like. You know, do they have children? Are they self-employed? Are they a business owner? Do they have a professional level, you know, position or job? So, you know, those are all of the fluff type things when you get into more of the specifics that you don't necessarily have to have. But if you can get that information, it's helpful. Great. Thank you. That that helps provide me some thoughts as far as who we'll be speaking to and just the exact information they're looking for. So that's super helpful. When it comes to rates, I do want to help define for those who are going to be doing this on their own, sort of like ballpark, where do we even begin with that? And might there be other things or how might we be able to increase that rate with other assets, i.e. email list or website? Like you said, it's, it does surprise me too that people don't have a website, but they have a podcast, to be honest. But let's talk about rates. Is this like, I don't know, how do we even begin to calculate this? I know the answer, but I, I, I want to hear from the expert. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Yeah, really, if you are looking to work with a representation firm, if you're kind of trying to compete within the podcast ad sales space, you can find very typical CPMs or cost per thousand, which essentially is is the, the language of how much does it cost to reach a thousand people. So if you're trying to kind of play in that arena, you could say that, Typically, rates in the space right now are somewhere between, I would say, 15 to 50, depending on the size of your audience and the quality of your listener and how targeted it is and things like that. However, if you're selling on your own, throw those out the window. Really, I don't think that they're relevant to you because it doesn't matter what the industry trends are because the businesses you're going to be talking to don't know anything about the industry trends, right? right they right. just know that the your podcast seems like it could be a good way to get them customers. I think the most valuable way of doing it is like you said, Pat, is don't just sell your podcast. Package this together. If you can package it together, it has so much more value. So can you include them in your newsletter? Can you put a banner ad on your website? Can you do social posts for them? Can you do... Gosh, I've, I'm working with a really creative podcaster right now where they are creating playlists and they're having their sponsors. They're, of course, within the music genre, but they're creating playlists. They're, they're titling their playlists after their sponsor. They're doing interviews on their podcast. They're wearing their sponsors merch, you know, their merchandise with their logos and stuff and their videos. So yeah, it's really you can do so many creative things with these packages. So if you just have a podcast, you can just sell it. But most people have other things too. So get creative and and think about how can you make it a real win for the advertiser. So at the end of the day, they feel like they just got so much value. And then you could charge, you know, Really, whatever you want to charge, right? What is what is the customer see as being valuable in that? And what you know, what are you getting them and what could they expect to get in return from that? I typically always say I don't like to charge less than a hundred dollars for anything because who wants to get out of bed for less than a hundred dollars, right? If you're gonna sell an ad, start at a hundred at least. But if you've got 
more to it, then look at that. The other mistake I do see people making, though, is oftentimes they go into advertisers and they say, I want a year commitment, right? So Mm -hmm. this is a $2,000 package, but you have to commit to the year. That's a lot harder to sell. So if you're just getting going and, and you're trying to kind of get your footing with rates, try it out, you know, create a package and see what kind of value you can bring do create some tiers, right? So create maybe an option one and an option two. And there's nothing wrong with asking for a big buy. It's a good place to start, but just make sure you're not over asking. Because I I, I see that a lot, truthfully, where podcasts overvalue what they can deliver. And then what ultimately ends up happening is that if the business doesn't see a return on their investment, they're not going to continue advertising with you. So you want to make sure in everything you do that it's a real win-win between you and the, the advertiser. I'm remembering what it was like to sell ads for the first time, not on my podcast. This is before I started a podcast. It was on a website, the architecture website that I had that started my career online. And a company had reached out to me and they wanted to advertise on the website and just put a little 150 by 150 pixel square on the sidebar and literally having like no idea what I was doing. And of course, I made some mistakes and I undercharged to start because I just wanted some money coming in. And I realized that I was undercharging myself by about a thousand percent. Eventually, I got to where it should have been. But that comes with experience and you're going to fail. You're going to make mistakes. But but I'm just grateful that we have sort of a starting point here. When it comes to the advertiser and maybe this this company is a perfect fit, you just have this feeling that it's a great fit and you know that you could provide value and you've given them uh, you know some options, like you said. The company comes back and goes, well, you know, we haven't really done podcast advertising before. I don't know if it's going to be that valuable. How, how do you step up and sell this thing? Like, what what are the words that you say about podcast ads and how it's different than Facebook and Google ads and a, a classified ad in the newspaper? What words do you say to actually sell this thing? That is such a good question. And Influence, influence, influence is what I always look at. And I always look at engagement too, because when you compare podcasts to almost any other media out there, the time spent listening is through the roof. So if you look at YouTube, people spend minutes on YouTube. If you look at social, people spend seconds on social. If you look at podcasts, people spend like over 30 minutes on average listening to a podcast. And it's such an intentional activity. Nobody ever says, gosh, how did I end up listening to this podcast? How did this end up, you know, in my in my ears, right? It's like when you, how many of us have had these experiences with YouTube where we're watching it? I know my kids have the experience all day long where they're watching it. And next thing you know, you get the next video and the next video. And mm-hmm. how did you get there? Or the same thing happens on social media, right? Where all of a sudden we're watching this, you know, this video or this ad comes across and we don't know. We're like, wow. But with podcast, it's such an intentional activity. And what that means is that means that there's a high level of engagement because nobody is going to listen to 30 minutes or an hour or, I mean, in the case of Joe Rogan, like four hours of podcasting if they're not intentionally listening, if they're not engaged in what's happening. And the other big, big power of podcast advertising is that host read endorsement ads. You know, people know, like, and trust hosts. And when you recommend a product, that is so much more powerful than all of the other forms of advertising out there. Many forms of advertising are essentially like somebody shouting at you, right? Like somebody standing on the street corner saying, Hey, look at me, look at me, look at me, I'm awesome. And with podcast ads, 
the person that you listen to, that you take advice from, that you get entertained by, they are saying, hey, you should check this out. It's an amazing product. And let me tell you how. That has so much more power than almost any other form of advertising, which is why the industry is doing so phenomenally well and why we don't have ad blockers in place to block podcast ads, right? Like we want these messages and listeners, statistically listeners like host red ads because we all like to buy products and services. We just want to know which products and services we should sign up for, right? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. if we can, as podcast hosts, really bring products and services to our audiences that we know are going to benefit them, it's, it's got so much power. So... I know you asked for some key key phrases, but really those are the basis of what I sell on is the power of engagement, the power of influence, and the host red endorsement ad. How might one prove that? Prove the effectiveness? Yeah. So in terms of what is happening in the podcast space right now, typically what we're looking at is creating some sort of a unique URL or a promo code. And as a podcast listener, I'm sure that you all have heard that before, right? It's it's nothing new. But talk to your advertiser. And I, I think one of the lessons I learned early on in my career is understand their expectations because everybody has a different interpretation of what success is. I had a client that I was working with once that I did not set expectations with. And at the end of an event... I said, gosh, how did it go for you? And he's like, it was horrible. I'm like, you're kidding. What happened? Like, it seemed busy. It seemed like you were talking to people. And he's like, well, I only got 300 leads. And I was like, that's amazing. You got 300 leads. And he's like, well, my goal was 3000. And I was like, there were 4000 people at the event. Did you really think 3000 were going to come to your space? The mistake I made was I didn't create clear expectations up front. If up front he had said, I want 3,000 leads from this event, I would have said, it's not going to happen. Like that's not going to happen. 300 is a success. So before you go out with an advertiser into a campaign, set those expectations. Find out what does a win look like for them? What does success look like for them? It might be that they're interested in you know, really just getting more exposure. Maybe they're looking for brand awareness. Maybe they don't have a certain goal of how many conversions they want, but maybe they do have a conversion goal. And then talk to them about what that looks like. And then as the campaign is progressing, check in with them and find out, are your ads working for them? Are they getting the leads that they had hoped for? And if they're not, what can you do as the podcaster? Can you put additional things out there? Can you tweak the ad? Can you you know, bring in your, your spouse to do an interactive ad read so it sounds more interesting to the audience? Like, Get creative, but first start with that expectation and then put those, those elements in place like the unique URLs and the promo codes so that you can do the tracking, but make sure that you have expectations clear up front. That's so key. And I love how you're asking the person that you're going to be serving these ads for, what is their goal? That in and of itself is different. And it makes them show that you actually care about making this work for them. And I think that's such a smart thing to do and a great way to just set the relationship up front. Because what I found is that if I can serve this company who's advertising on the show, they're going to want to continue to come back. Some don't ever want to leave, right? They couldn't imagine it because it's such a good driver. And just remaining authentic and and honest all all along the way is always great. So thank you for setting that tone. I want to ask you, when we reach out to companies, who do we need to speak to? Are we speaking to the CEO? Are we speaking to the HR person? The man? Like, how do we best 
get to the decision maker on who can either pay us or work with us for ads? It depends entirely on the size of the company. So if you are going for a relatively small company, then I would ask to speak with the owner. If you are going to a more established company and you know they have a marketing department, then I would go to the marketing department. Podcasts are really interesting because they kind of straddle the line between online and offline. So online marketing tend to be any sort of digital, you know, ads. So social media, you know, Google search, banner ads, or, you know, any sort of web website ads, that's going to all be digital. Whereas TV, radio, newspaper, that's all offline. And I found that it can be a little bit tricky sometimes because podcasts feel like digital since obviously you have to have technology to get them. But because we don't have the depth of metrics that are provided in most digital spaces, a lot of companies will classify podcast advertising as offline. Mm -hmm. So as you're approaching the company, depending on the size of their organization, you know, take a look. LinkedIn hands down the best resource, you know, if you're you're trying to get to somebody within the company, what I typically do that I think works super well is you just go on LinkedIn and you find their company page. So once you find their company page, it'll tell you how many employees work there. So if you just click on employees, it'll bring a whole list of their employees up and then you can kind of get a sense of how their marketing department is set up. So really, usually like a marketing coordinator, marketing manager, sometimes the CMO, but depending on the size of the company, the CMO might be too high up in the ranks. Oftentimes too, if you can find somebody that isn't the highest, you can reach out to them and say, Hey, I want to talk to you about podcast advertising. Who's the right person? Chances are a marketing assistant's going to have a little bit more time on their hands to respond than the CMO will. But look at, see if you can look at the structure of the company and find the right person that way through LinkedIn. That's perfect. Thank you, Heather. I want to move on to those who may be qualified to have an agency support them or are almost or will get there eventually and talk about what that experience is like. And I do have to give a, a shout out and thank you to Eric Fisher, who's the one that introduced us together at an event. I'm not even remembering where this event was. It perhaps was in San Diego or I don't even know, but a podcast. It was Orlando. It was Orlando. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So Eric, thank you. He had heard that I wanted to do more ads, just didn't have the time. And this is one of the reasons why you might want to work with an agency because they're going to take the time and have the knowledge and the connections and the relationships to sell ads on your behalf. Obviously for a price and there is a commission and all that sort of stuff plays a role. But for somebody who is at that level, what are the big things to look out for, whether they work with True Native Media or some others? Like, can you set the expectation for the person who's going out looking for an agent, what to expect when working with an agency when it comes to serving ads? Like, I'm guessing there's a lot of uh, questions about, well, how much of that money am I going to need to share? What's that relationship like? This is your realm. I'd love, I'd love for you to set the stage for us. For sure. So there are two, I, I feel like, separate entities when it comes to representation. So oftentimes people are part of networks and networks will a lot of times bring advertisers to you. And there's a lot that goes into being part of a network. And most of the time, a network is going to have a 50-50 split on ads. Now, True Native Media works and represents a number of networks, as do you know some of the other representation firms in this space. So your network might be 
also working with a representation firm. So there can be several layers in there. But usually with a network, it's about a 50-50 split. But hopefully they're helping you with a lot of other things, not just ad sales. Mm -hmm. If you're looking to just work with a representation firm right now in the industry, a a 70-30 split is very common. So the podcaster will receive 70% and the representation firm keeps 30%, which is what we do at True Native Media. And I would say that my recommendation is as you're looking at representation firms, look at a few things. So first of all, find a rep firm that specializes in the genre of your podcast. So for whatever reason... It could just be because I'm not super into sports. Sports podcasts haven't worked really well for us. We've tried in the past and they always, they just don't work, right? We're not able to get the traction that we want with them. So we really turn down sports advertisers a lot because they're not a perfect fit for us. If you're a sports podcast, find a representation firm that has had a lot of success with sports, right? So identify the genre that you're in. And then as you're interviewing different rep firms, talk to them and find out where their specialty is. I know there are certain genres that we can sell really well. And so I want to take on podcasts within those genres because they work well. So first and foremost, you know, I, I would think of that. Next, I do really feel like size is so important and, and size in a couple of different ways. So there are firms out there that literally represent thousands of different podcasts. They have a big staff of people. I am sure that they do provide excellent customer service, but I know from having many conversations that a lot of podcasts fall in the cracks. You know, if you've got two to 3,000 podcasts you're working with, how you can possibly service each of those is beyond me, right? So what ends up happening oftentimes is that your show doesn't actually really get pitched that often. Mm -hmm. So if your show isn't being pitched, you're not going to get advertisers. So I do think the size of the firm you go with makes a difference. The other piece that I have seen is the size of your show makes a difference. And what I mean by that is there are some larger firms out there who will take on smaller shows sometimes. I've had two conversations in the last three weeks with podcasts that are with large firms who say they're not selling our show at all. And I've looked at them and said... I don't see why not. Like in my book, they should be selling your show. Your show should be very sellable. And the only conclusion I can come to is that their shows are too small. So if I'm a rep firm and I've got, let's say, 100 shows to sell and you know, 50 of them are getting over 500,000 downloads and then 50 of them are getting 10,000 downloads, which one am I going to pitch, right? At the end of the day, I'm going to pitch the bigger shows because I know I'm going to make bigger dollars. So I do think it's really important that you find a rep firm that is suited well for your specific needs and can really bring you the type of relationship you're looking for. That's amazing. Thank you for sharing that. What does the rep do specifically? Like walk me through how you help sell SPI, for example. What does that look like? What does that mean? Yeah, that's that's a terrific question. So In terms of... And really, I I think the other thing that is important that I always want to bring up, very rarely when we sign a show on, are we going to have advertisers for that 
show the next week or the next month or sometimes even the next two months. Because what happens is we've got these conversations that are happening with agencies, with direct advertisers. And if I talk to somebody, you know, for instance, gosh, you know, I I was emailing with a woman this morning. I've been talking to her for probably two months Mm -hmm. and she's very interested in buying ads. And I think she's going to buy ads, but she's got a hundred questions between the first meeting and when the campaign launches. And so what happens is that your show has to really get put into the pitch rotation and that can take a while, right? I have to present your show today. But then it might be two months before that advertiser says yes. Now, granted, of course, there are people who say yes tomorrow, Mm -hmm. but that doesn't always happen. So there are definitely a number of agencies out there in the U.S. that specialize in podcast advertising. So True Native Media and all of the other rep firms work with these agencies. So our process is building really strong relationships with those agencies because they want to come to a company like True Native Media because they know, hey, True Native Media has got 70 shows that could deliver well for me, that we've done a really good job vetting, that we know they're going to publish their episodes on time. They're going to actually run the ads when they say they're going to run the ads, right? So we have good relationships with these agencies and we're always looking to expand our relationship with agencies. So getting in front of them, making sure that when they have a client that has needs that they think of us. So that's a big part of what we do. And then the next part of what we do at True Native Media, which doesn't, I think, always happen at all rep firms, is that we are actively going out and soliciting advertisers. So if, you know, if somebody's really interested in, uh, you know, one of our podcasts is really interested in a specific shoe company or maybe a clothing company or a software company, we'll go out to that company and try to sell ads specifically to advertisers and companies who oftentimes have never run ads in the podcast space before. And that is the process of identifying who the right person is, you know, creating, having a a needs analysis call with them, creating a proposal for them and walking them through how we're going to make podcast advertising successful for them. As far as payments are concerned, do payments go to the rep and then the rep then distributes to the podcaster? Or tell me a little bit about the flow of, of cash in this situation. Yeah, I think that that's another thing that's really important to think about with rep firms in particular is that, you know, what happens a lot of times is we've got a company. So let's use ZipRecruiter, for instance. So ZipRecruiter places a ton of ads in the podcast space. ZipRecruiter works with an agency, right? So ZipRecruiter says, hey, I want to place ads. Their agency says, great, let me talk to True Native Media. They call True Native Media. We call the podcaster. We get the ads placed, right? Then what happens is we send the agency a bill. The agency sends the client a bill. (laughs) And then it all goes the opposite direction, right? So it can take a really long time to get paid sometimes. And oftentimes, the podcaster is like, hey, what's going on with this? And it's because there are so many layers, right? And the other thing to consider, especially when we're talking about agencies, is that when, you know, ZipRecruiter is placing millions of dollars worth of ads in a year. So it's not just, oh, your podcast and our rep firm. It's, you know, 15 rep firms and a thousand podcasts. And so everything has to be reconciled and added up. And there's a bazillion people between that, you know, buy and it actually happening. So 
Now, the nice part about direct advertisers is that it's much simpler, right? I can work with a direct advertiser and I can say they need to pay me up front, right? So the first time I've ever worked with you, I want to you know, collect cash up front. And that can happen within weeks sometimes. Yeah, send an invoice so, and you're good. Yep. That's the beauty of direct advertisers and a lot of other things. But yeah. <laughs> Hypothetically, could a podcaster just go directly to Zip Recruiter, or is a company like that always just going to use their sort of agency slash rep flow to, to, to run ads usually? My experience has been that they're always going to use that flow. Occasionally, you will have someone who's okay working around. But you know, if you're a bigger show, I never recommend it. Because what happens is the agency in particular gets their feathers ruffled. And they're like, Hey, how come you're not working with us? Why are you going directly to our client? Are you trying to, you know, supersede our power? So if you if you do know the agency that a client is working with, it's much better usually to go to the client, unless your package like we had talked about earlier, if you're selling ads on your own, and you've got a package that isn't just podcast advertising, but maybe has a lot more depth to it, then maybe it's not even the marketing person that's going to make a decision. Maybe it's the human resource person because you're trying to do something you know, more creative, or maybe it's the events coordinator. So depending on the type of package you put together, there might be some cases where you could go direct. But I would say in my experience, most of the large companies out there advertising have an agency of some sort they're working with. Cool. Let's flip the switch a little bit and let's talk about it from a company's perspective, wanting to get on podcasts, advertise there. Who's it for? Who's it not for? Is it is it really any company or is there specific kinds of companies that this works better for? And then how, how might we get the process started? Obviously, we could go to, to you, right, to help find podcasters. Is going to the agency model typically the best for a company? Yeah. So the direct-to-consumer brands are the number one advertisers in the space right now. So the IAB or the Interactive Advertising Bureau put out a report about six months ago. It was a report from 2019 that really just showed who's advertising in the space, who's doing well. And what they found is the direct-to-consumer brands in the health and wellness space in particular are just killing it. So if you're a company in that space podcast will definitely be a good fit for you. Financial services also have been doing really well within the podcast space. I would say any sort of software. So if you've got a, if you're a SaaS company, they work terrific in this space. The biggest, I think, most important thing right now in podcasting is that it's ideal if you are a company that is looking to reach a national you know, consumer. So if you are an e-commerce store or if in some way your customer can come from anywhere, then podcast ads are good for you. I have a good friend in the agency space here locally and had a conversation with him about a week ago. And he was like, what is up with podcast ads? Like my car dealers and my mattress companies really want to run podcast ads. And how do they do that? And I'm like, well, they don't really, you know, like it's... Yeah. The, the, just heard podcast ads were working and then, then want to get behind <laughs> it, right? Exactly, exactly. But really, I would say... The space hasn't matured enough. And and Spotify, and we could talk forever about that. But Spotify just has made several very large acquisitions within the podcast space. And my suspicion is, is that they are, are certainly going to get to a place here probably sooner rather than later where an average small business could just log on to Spotify, just like you buy Spotify or Pandora ads and buy those pre-recorded ads on podcasts. I think there certainly is a space for that. I don't think that they are going to be nearly as effective as host-read ads. So 
really the best thing for you to do, I think, as a, a business owner or somebody in marketing, if you're considering podcast advertising, is really to you know, invest in that host red ad. So if you're a national company, host red ads are the way to go, hands down. And you don't have to work with an agency. I would say if you've got a budget of 100000 or more, an agency is probably a good way to go. If you have less than 100000 I recommend usually that people look at either networks or rep firms because they're going to help you. You know, a company like Trinity Media, we can help you if you've got a budget of 10 or 20,000 to make a good decision about where to go and place your ads as opposed to you trying to do it on your own. Because going individually to podcasters is a lot of work. And, you know, just from personal experience, it doesn't always garner the results you're looking for. So. Yeah, I mean, I obviously have a podcast and I get a lot of people asking me directly to sponsor the show. And like, you know, 99.99% of the time, it's just, I could tell it's just the boilerplate ask and I don't even know who you are. So I'm not even going to entertain this, right, at all. It, it's all coming from True Native Media right now. So yeah, that's that's really interesting. And then as far as tracking, to make sure that I am getting results as a company doing podcast advertising, what's the best mechanism to to do that? What's the best call to action, if you will? Yeah, I think if you are looking for a direct response, there's a couple of things to consider. Number one, it's really important to make sure that you're okay with discounting your product. I've had some really companies that are more in the brand space who sell really high-end products who've come and they've wanted to test a campaign like it's a direct response campaign. When in all actuality, if you're not going to give a discount or if you're not going to put an offer out there that's going to entice people you really shouldn't be running direct response. You should be running branding ads. So think about that. And really, the other thing that just gets me, I actually purchased some headphones from a company that's been advertising with us for my husband for a a Christmas gift. And I went on their website, big banner at the top says, you know, sign up and, you know, put this promo code in, which was like, you know, save 15 and get 15% off. And I'm like, Oh, that's interesting. Well, of course, I used a promo code from a podcaster. And I got 15% off. So from a user's perspective, why in the world did I want to dig up a promo code to get the same discount that was right on their website, right? It was much easier for me just to take that promo code off the top of their website. So make sure that you're putting out a unique and compelling offer. And it doesn't always have to be a discount. It can be you know, additional services. It could be additional products. But it has to be something compelling enough that people are going to want to remember the promo code. They're going to want to put it in. So really think about that and think about what that win looks like for you. So that those are the basics. We could also talk about attribution if that's something we want to get into. Yeah, let's just chat about that a little bit before we end up here. What does that mean exactly? So there are definitely some new companies. I shouldn't call them new because they're they've been around for a couple of years. Newer companies within the podcast space where we're able to actually see who has listened to a podcast and then who is making a purchasing decision. So essentially what happens is the listener listens and the advertiser puts a tracking pixel on their website. So Tracking pixels are very common. If you're in marketing, you know all about them. Lots and lots of companies use them. And essentially, we know, hey, Pat listened to this podcast. Then he went over and he purchased these headphones. 
You don't have to put a promo code in. You don't have to go to a unique URL. They just know that, hey, there was a conversion that happened. They don't know Pat was the person, right? They don't know your your name. They don't know any of your personal information, but they do know you listen to the podcast. So I do really encourage advertisers to think about attribution software because it takes a lot of the guesswork out. The other thing is, is when we're looking for results from podcast ads, ideally, we are also looking for varying degrees of information, right? So we want to see that people did use the promo code. We do want to call to action, but putting in an attribution tracking pixel can also be a layer of information that will essentially prove to us that our podcast campaign was successful. Can that track if a person plays the podcast on their Apple podcast app and then goes to the website? How does it know that? It's all through your IP address and user agent. So that's how they track it all. So they they know, hey, Pat listens to his iPhone, but then he buys things on his laptop or he listens on his iPhone and then he goes to work and buys stuff on his work computer. So it can it's it's kind of crazy. Actually, if you want to share the names of those companies that we could look at for attribution, do you have those names in mind? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So we use a company called Podsites. There's also a company called Chartable and then a third called Claritas. So those are, I would say, the three biggest players within the space right now. And there are, I know we kind of touched on some privacy things. So there definitely is a lot of privacy conversation that is happening around this to make sure that people's privacy is really being protected. And I would say that like all privacy issues... While maybe it should be black and white, it's definitely more in the gray space right now. But it is something as an industry that we are talking about a lot because privacy issues are important, right? Nobody wants to feel like their privacy is being invaded. As a marketer, you like to see results and all that stuff. So it's like, where's the balance? Right. Well, I feel like we could talk for hours more about this kind of stuff. And it's stuff that obviously we at SPR are very much involved with and are staying on top of. And we have you to thank for helping us with not just filling in ads, but also filling in our heads with information and what's relevant right now, especially here in this episode today. So thank you, Heather, for coming in. I appreciate it. I know you have a resource for those who perhaps aren't quite at agency level yet, who could perhaps still gain some further value from you in terms of how to actually, uh, you know, get ads on your own, uh, where might people go to find that? Yeah, for sure. So I have a course called the Podcast Moneymakers course that walks you step by step through how you can go and get advertisers on your own. You can go to heatherosgood.com to find that information. And then also, we've been putting a lot of effort into our podcast advertising playbook. So that podcast is specifically designed to be a show to talk about everything advertising within the podcast space. So the podcast advertising playbook, if you are interested either from an advertiser perspective or a podcaster perspective, come and check that show out. Cool. Thank you. And then for those who may be qualified and have enough downloads to potentially work with you, how might they start that conversation? Yeah, if you go to truenativemedia.com, you can fill out a form there. I will say right now we are kind of in a waitlist period just because we're in between years and really strategizing about the shows we want to take on. Mm -hmm. But please come and feel free to fill out that form because we'd love to you know connect with you and see if we could be a good fit for you. So the app truenativemedia.com for that. Awesome. Thank you so much, Heather. We appreciate you. Thank you for all the insight and insider information. Looking forward to um to our normal meetings and stuff. <laughs> yeah, for sure, for sure. Well, thanks for having me on, Pat. And I hope that this information has been helpful. Definitely has been. Thank you so much. 
All right, I hope you enjoyed that episode with Heather Osgood. Again, you can find her and her company at truenativemedia.com. And again, big shout out to her and the entire team over there for helping us manage our advertising to help take a lot of the load off our backs and to help us honestly just make more money and do it in a very genuine way. So thank you, Heather. Thank you, True Native Media. And thank you, the listener, for listening all the way through. Appreciate you so, so much. And I hope that you take some valuable information from this episode and apply it in one way or another into your business. Speaking of applying in your business, we have a lot of things coming up this year that you can definitely apply to help you grow your business, maintain it and scale it, have more of a team, generate more income, get more email subscribers, all those kinds of things. If that sounds great to you, please make sure you're subscribed. If you're not subscribed, I would love to help you. Hit subscribe so you don't miss any other episodes. Thank you in advance for all the reviews that have been coming in. They come in every single day. And my team and I, we read them, we review them. I I appreciate them so, so much. And I look forward to serving you in the next episode as well. So hit subscribe and I'll see you then. Cheers, take care. And as always, Team Flynn for the win. Peace out. Thanks for listening to the Smart Passive Income Podcast at www.smartpassiveincome.com. So we're trying something new with the SPA podcast that we've been working on for a while now, and I'm so excited to tell you about it. We partnered with our friends at Supercast and just launched a new podcast experience called the SPA Podcast Premium Pass, and now you can sign up for it today. The SPA Podcast Premium Pass is a paid subscription that gives you all the content you know and trust and also gives you perks that we've never offered before. You'll get access to all SPI podcast episodes a day before they're published anywhere else, and you're also gonna get them completely ad-free. And soon we're gonna start publishing new weekly content that will only be available to subscribers, all for only $5 a month. It only takes a few minutes to set up the SPI Podcast Premium Pass and start listening with your favorite podcast player. Membership is super flexible with no commitment required, so you're in full control of your subscription at all times, and it's a subscription that you can feel good about. By subscribing to the Premium Pass, you'll be supporting the SPI team, which allows us to continue to produce valuable content, including new podcasts for you. We're so excited to be offering the subscription and we hope that you'll join us. Sign up for the SPA Podcast Premium Pass today at smartpassiveincome.com slash premium. Again, that's smartpassiveincome.com slash premium. Hope to see you on the Premium Pass. Thank you for listening to today's episode. to an end but the fun doesn't have to stop here if you have any questions suggestions or feedback head over right now to twitter and facebook and like share and get involved join us next time Please be advised that this podcast is meant for educational and informational purposes only and is in no way a replacement for legal or medical advice. The opinions contained within are solely those of the interviewers and interviewees and should be received as so. Those seeking help or advice are encouraged to obtain professional legal and medical services.